friends and welcome to Northern Static, the show where Canadian composers tell us about the state of their art. I'm bassist and composer Pete Johnston. On this show I talk to composers from a range of musical scenes to find out how they make their music, why it sounds the way it does, and most importantly, what they think we should be listening for when we hear it. In this episode I talk to composer and guitarist Craig Dunsmere. Craig's music is shaped by his remarkably diverse listening habits, which take in all manner of music from the four corners of the world. He's played in many different projects over the years in Toronto, but recently he has focused on composing for an ensemble called the Dun Dun Band. Much of our discussion revolved around his approach to writing for this supergroup of Toronto musical heroes. Craig Dunsmere on where listening stops and composing begins, coming up next on Northern Static. The concept for the show is simple. I sit down and talk with composers about their creative processes, and they play some compositions of their choosing as examples of what they do. Think of it as a group listening session where the creator of the music is here to guide us through how and why they make the music they do. Before I give some background about my guest in this episode, I want to tell all you folks out there in Radioland that this show will be the final episode of Northern Static, at least for the foreseeable future. As anyone who has followed the show since the beginning knows, my episode release schedule is sporadic, to put it politely. Turns out that I'm a pretty busy guy out here with a demanding day job that doesn't leave me much time at the end of the day for projects such as this. I've had an amazing time doing the show and have learned so much. I'd like to thank all my guests who gave so freely of their time to share their wisdom with me. My own composing process has changed a great deal over the course of doing this show, as I've attempted to incorporate ideas from all the smart people who sat down to chat with me. I tried to present a broad cross-section of music making on the show, so I hope that it has been as inspiring and useful to someone else out there as it has been to me. Thanks as well to all of you who have listened. It's been a labor of love for me, and I hope that came through in what you heard. Okay, enough about me. On to the real reason you're here. My guest, Craig Dunsmuir, is familiar to many Toronto music fans for his role as purveyor of fine recordings. Craig has worked in record stores around town for many years, using his prodigious knowledge of what's good in music to send countless people home with their new favorite record. Although he prefers to think of himself as a listener rather than a composer, Craig can't seem to help himself from taking the sounds he hears on his listening journeys and blending them up into new tunes to play with his friends. I knew Craig as a kind of professional music appreciator for a long time, until I heard his original music. When I finally did get to hear this group, uh, Dun Dun Band, it melted my brain straight away. The music sounded familiar and strange all at once. The experience in music listening, I'm always keen to have. I'm very pleased that he agreed to come on the show to tell me all about what he does. As always here at Northern Static, let's start things off with a bit of Craig's music to grease the wheels for our discussion. Here's a piece from Craig's cleverly titled Pandemo series. Obviously, this is music recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we're, we're all locked up on our own, and Craig is clearly making productive use of that time. So he's recorded some music that he hopes to do with the Dun Dun Band. But at the moment, this series is coming out as Dun Dun Man. So here's a piece called Rof Ovlop, which is Pandemo number 14. Thank you. 
Craig Dunsmere, guitarist, bassist, composer, band leader, um, fountain of musical knowledge. Oh, shocks. Howdy, welcome, Pete. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Um, great to have you here. Um, so we've known each other for a while. We met through the mighty Mike Smith. We did. Guest of the podcast. Yeah, through uh, through your involvement in Muskox and later on Mike Smith Company, or not Mike Smith Company, but uh, what was the transition? Yeah, it was the Mike Smith Company. It was the Mike Smith Company, yes. But but and then vice versa when uh, you know Mike, of course, would uh, would be likewise playing in your groups. It's true. It's true. So Mike Smith is the great unifier of of many many people. Um, so you um, you've been leading your own group lately. The Dun Dun Band, which we're going to hear some of. We already heard a little bit of because we led the show with some Dun Dun Band. Um, and you, you've played in lots of other people's projects, um, but we're here today to talk primarily about your own composing. So when did you get into writing your own music and what what inspired you to start doing that? Well, I guess this is where this episode might differ somewhat to greatly from some of your other interviews and from some of the other subjects you've had on and talked to um, in that I come more from the rock world than from the jazz world. You know, und undoubtedly, many other folks that you've interviewed must have had an interest or an active participation in rock music in their younger days. But even as a young adult into adulthood, my music, um, although uh, jazz influenced, jazz inspired, uh, uh, um, jazz aspirational, is as someone who doesn't know how to read music, um, still ends up coming from, um, you know, I guess more of a rock methodology. So I guess the, the, the first uh, music that I wrote was as a teenager uh, in rock bands. First in my hometown of Newmarket, Ontario, at the end of the 404 there. Home and, of Glass Tiger. Yeah, Home of Glass Tiger, exactly. And uh, yeah, I, I was probably like seven or eight years old when they ruled the much music airwaves. Um, so yeah, grew up in Newmarket. Um, and uh, in yeah, in high school, um, and then late, uh, um, well, I guess in uh, I went, I got bust into Aurora, close enough to uh, to Newmarket. But in any any event, that's um, where I initially um, wrote songs uh, in a, a rock band context, um, like jamming them out in the basement, kind of thing. Yeah, and uh, um, and and one of the bands that continue that. Um, at least one of the members was someone who moved to Toronto around the same time as me, a fellow who's now a, a visual artist, Morley Shayek. Um, we were both among, it was, it was a band that was um, sort of influenced by the whole sort of uh, Sebado or Sloan, which I guess started with the Beatles where everybody brought in the songs that they had written themselves. And so this band was very schizophrenic. Sloan didn't invent that? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess the songs that I contributed, um, they were, I guess, I guess something that's carried on in terms is, um, yeah, like, so I, I would, I would often, they ended up in hindsight, um, looking back sort of being like songwriting exercises where I'd, you know, be into Sebador, be into Eric Strip or Superchunk or PJ Harvey or Hayden. And I would write these, or Grasshopper from, uh, from, from here in, uh, in Brampton slash Toronto. And uh, I would often write songs in that mold and then, you know, get it a bit wrong. And then hopefully it would sound a bit 
more like me. And generally speaking, you know, that's a sensibility that is probably carried over uh, into my older days. Right, like trying to do a, a version of, of what you were hearing, what you're enjoying at the time. Yeah, yeah, it uh, undoubtedly rubbed off on me. And and I guess that's maybe related to, I, m- I might self-identify more as a listener of music than a musician, per se. Well, I've listened to your music, <laughs> so I, I'm not going to dispute it, but uh, you are you are making music, but I certainly know you'd be a, a voracious listener uh, with a large record collection and a deep well of knowledge of all kinds of different things. So it sounds like, you know, we're coming from a similar place like when I grew up in the early 90s all that all the rock bands you just mentioned were important for me super chunk especially um and coming out of that though like more more recently I'm not hearing a whole lot of that in uh in the music that you do now so it seems like you you branched into some very different things oh at yeah certain point. yeah I guess um so what then happened after high school and moving to Toronto circa 1998 or so, then I guess the next stage in my life relating to music that's worth mentioning would be um, the beginning of the maybe like wavelength era of uh, indie rock activity here in Toronto. Um, met some folks who were a little bit older than me and um, started contributing to that series in terms of copy editing, occasionally doing reviews, but the, and then occasionally playing shows and that's um, in that series mainly, but some other stuff and me splitting my time between those indie rock shows that were often at like um, Ted's wrecking yard or then moved to the Elmo and whatnot, but splitting my time between that world and the world of free improvisation and avant-garde jazz and free jazz at, um, the Idler Pub, uh, the Music Gallery, and the Victory. So, what was it? Uh, what was it that appealed to you about the free jazz? If you're coming out of a rock world, that did you hear something in that music that was similar, or or that you could relate to in some way? Actually, to be honest, when I first heard free jazz, what really appealed to me was that I could initially. Uh, mess around and approximate poorly what they were doing with their extended technique and their screamy fire music approach. Uh, you know, I was someone who was playing clarinet in the high school band. And when I heard Eric Dolphy, I was like, well, these compositional things elude me and they sound amazing, but I don't quite understand them yet. Um, but the way he's screaming through his read is something that I could approximate. Um, but, uh, yeah. Um, Do you ever whip out the clarinet now? No, I, 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 uh, I so mean, it's not too late. Yeah, I, I'd have to to um, renew my rental from Cosmo Music in Richmond Hill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they still have you on file. Yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> um, because that's that's a common thing. Because again, same thing happened with me. I was into Sonic Youth or whatever, and then didn't seem like that much of a leap into Ornette Coleman and, and John Coltrane and stuff. Right, exactly. Happening. Yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of Sonic Youth were a gateway for, for, for me as well. Um, and yeah, related to the to the, the local scene here and the, the um, uh, avant-garde um, history of here in, in Toronto um, and Sonic Youth is that the first time I saw CCMC was them um, opening for Sonic Youth, maybe the Cool House or the Warehouse or RPM, um, circa the Thousand Leaves tour, I think. Really, CCMC opened for Sonic Youth. Yeah, 
Yeah, because I, I, I think because of um, Thurston Moore's interest in free jazz and, you know, I, I don't know if it was maybe the Michael Snow connection or perhaps the Paul Dutton connection because Thurston Moore's really into poetry and sound poetry. So maybe through Paul Dutton's Four Horsemen um, membership. But in any event, then after that, I heard through the grapevine that CCMC were the, I guess it was Tuesday night residents at the music gallery. And so the first time I ever set foot in the music uh, gallery was yeah probably 1998 or maybe 97 at the very earliest, um, back when they were on Richmond at university. And um, yeah, it was a great time. I, I met some great people, including Aaron Lumley and Alex Moskos. And I had already met my friend, Matt Collins. So there were a bunch of folks who, um, with whom I, yeah, would mainly see, yeah, out at, at nights such as that or at the um, ulterior music series that Mike Gennaro and Kurt Newman put on at the Victory around the same time. Right. So did you join in playing in any of those projects? Um, eventually I did. So maybe closer to 2000, somewhere in between 98 and 2000, going into 2001, um, I played a little bit of improv guitar and also after hearing Philip Jack and Christian Markley and Otomo Yoshihide and here it comes to the whole sort of magpie thing was that um, I bought a couple, I already had a Fisher Price uh, turntable, but then I, I leveled, I uh, leveled up and uh, you know, invested in a couple of Caliphones if I remember right. And um, figured out that if you stick some uh, circular, like three ring binder reinforcement stickers on records, hopefully records that y you know you're okay with uh, defacing and uh, never hearing without a skip again. Um, that it would cause it would cause like a very specific loop, and that you could like really fine tune the loops. And so, um, yeah. So I, I I played turntables at least once at the victory. I don't know if the show was necessarily any good, but I believe it was me and Matt Collins improvising. Um, with whom I, I was in a rock band. Um, he led a band called Currently in These United States, and I was his bass player for a little while. But we, we also, I, I think also inspired by Gaster Del Sol, we, we worked on more experimental improv stuff just because we were really excited about those possibilities. Hmm. And out of that, did you get into, clearly you got into writing your own, actually composing stuff. Yeah, I think um, related to that, in terms of writing stuff down, I developed, I mean, I guess it, it wasn't really a huge development. It wasn't really that big of a deal. But I, I, because I don't know how to read music, I found it easier to come up with a tab where I could write, um, you know, uh, sort of underlines and places of rest and whatnot and um, sort of fall, um, yeah, write everything out on a tab grid and where that really came in handy was after I bought a Line 6 looping pedal. And um, I think initially I put a classified ad at, um, stuck it on the message board at Who's Emma, the, um, where Paul's Boutique now is. It used to be an anarchist um, punk bookstore. Um, and they had um, um, punk and post-hardcore shows and hardcore shows in the, uh, in the basement there. Um, it, that was where I met uh, one of your 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 other interview subjects, Shaw Hanliam, but that's another story. Um, in any event, um, so I think I came up with this tab system after it didn't really work out in terms of I had these ideas um, for 
you know, getting into uh, uh, American minimalism, getting into Philip Glass and Steve Reich and whatnot, and Terry Riley. Um, uh, yeah, I, I came up, and also getting into um, being into math rock, like Don Caballero and those sorts of bands. Um, I, uh, yeah, wrote some really sort of cyclical, repetitive guitar pieces and enlisted, put out an open call for other guitarists. And in that sense, the sort of guitar army sensibility was probably influenced by hearing about how Sonic Youth in their early days, you know, that that Lee and Thurston were in Bronca's band. Mm -hmm. But but this had more of a, um, uh, uh, yeah, the the um, the 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 ostinatos, the 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 loop melodies were way more in line with with Reich and and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, less drony, but. Um, in any event, when um, we had maybe two or three practices and one gig, perhaps at the Idler Pub, I forget the, the specifics. But once I found out about the existence of looping pedals and once the price of looping pedals dropped, because initially I heard about the boomerang pedal, but it was really expensive. Mm -hmm. But then when I heard about the Green Line 6 and it was fairly cheap. Yeah, and those uh, things were everywhere for yeah, a while. Yeah, exactly. So maybe around 2002, I bought one of those and started performing um, solo. And now things have sort of come full circle because- so, Sorry, were you building the loops live or did you have stuff already recorded in that then you would- Oh yeah, I would, build, I would build them live. And I guess one of, the, the, one of the things related to that and to the Green Line 6 is that you can't save anything on the Green Line 6. Once you unplug it, everything disappears. Unlike the the boss ones or some of the other ones where you can actually store it and it's sort of like somewhere between a looping pedal and a sampler. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, I have one of the boss ones. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's why I asked that dumb yeah. question. Oh, no, no. That is not a dumb question. <laughs> um, but uh, um, yeah, and, and when I played with those, um, yeah, I sometimes mess around with, with phasing in, in terms of overlaying rhythms to, uh, to, to, to generate... Um, Sort of rhythmic crosstalk and uh, and that sort of stuff, but 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 anyhow, now things have sort of come full circle because I no longer use a looping pedal. And similar to when I had this guitar army idea for the guitar orchestra, which I was calling it at the time, um, I'm back to playing with a bunch of people in uh, in this band that I've been leading for the last four years or so called Dun Dun Band. Yeah. So are you? Do you use the We'll get to that music in a second, but do you use the loop pedal to just use it all now? Like when in your own composing, when you're coming up with things? No, I don't. I mean, um, the period, yeah, like maybe 15 years ago or slightly longer ago, I used it when, yeah, when I was um, playing solo, especially it came in handy if I was throwing things into the looper with different, um, like uh, lines of different, uh, length, so I'd maybe throw something in that was in like ten, and then do something in like you know seven or fourteen over top, and then everything would would sort of phase and and build up. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, during that period of my writing, um, having the loop, the looper came in handy in terms of like I'd need to actually write notes, like uh, in terms of uh, yeah, the, where, where I, having the the looper helped with the with the composition in terms of re refining it and figuring out what's what what sounded interesting but yeah i um nowadays I, I just write to paper um and i haven't even um a period in between then and now where i was work um 
just after the guitar store where I was working for a, a, a few to many years with Sandro Perry. Um, yeah, during that period, I, I did a, a lot more demoing um, because I was using electronic textures and effects a lot more and using, um, yeah, drum machines and pedals. And so having, yeah, those textures really influenced the, the pieces. And so, yeah, that, um, whereas, whereas now... Um, yeah, I, I'm not really using electronics or, or pedals beyond like just a Wawa um, in terms of my um, contributions to the band. So I usually just like sketch stuff out on paper. For the, we'll hear a little bit of this, this stuff with Sandro, but but that struck me as being quite different, um, more electronically generated. Um, and you can walk us through that in a little bit, but how were you involved in, in that side of things? Like a computer processing or anything or is your contribution primarily playing the instruments basically well i guess with with sandro um we uh were um um sort of match made the the matchmaker ended up being jonna jonathan bunce johnny dovercourt from wavelength because he was taking part in this chicago-based like web blog webzine thing called muted tones where the whole point was that participants were matched up or maybe not always matched up but they submitted um like a 20 minute piece i think was the 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 was was the uh the goal was to submit a 20 minute piece and then once and then you documented it on this web blog because it, it was the the era of the blog or, and uh so you die live journal yeah exactly it was totally that era so you diaristically sort of talked about the um the the, prog the progress and the process, and then you would hand it off to somebody else. You'd recommend to the um, um, yeah to to the organizers of this series who you think would make a good um, um, a participant for the for the next couple weeks. And so um, yeah, Jonathan took part in this, and then he recommended that Sandro and I be paired up, and we hadn't quite yet met each other. So. Uh, then yeah, a big part of us working together was that I came in with the looping pedal, played him some stuff I'd wrote with the looping pedal, and then he suggested that, and to to give it a bit more versatility and malleability in the mixing stage, um, you know, going into verging into like you know dubbing it out and whatnot on the DAW that um, instead of throwing it in via the looper, that he'd have more flexibility if I put it in part, uh, part by part by part, and. Um, so yeah, I, I guess that that relates to the question in terms of um, I'd often affect the sounds with pedals, and then um, initially, and then sometimes throw it into Sandro's DAW using the electronics, whether it be like guitar with electronics, bass with with, ele with electronics or pedals, or um, in the last things that we did, um, many of which didn't really get released um electronic hand drum and um and and effects uh and then once they were in the daw then sandro would work his his wizardry because he's uh, a lot more fluent on the daw than me he's very fluent yeah <laughs> in, in the recording studio yeah uh okay so let's let's get into a little bit about just your basic process you've told us a little bit about it with the with the looper and uh and that biz, but you just alluded to doing things on paper now. So let's maybe you could tell me a little bit about how you're writing things for your current project, the, the Dundun Band. Like what, how you go about doing it? What's what's your process for writing this music? Well, this is where it gets a bit idiosyncratic in that I use receipts. 
I write everything out in my um, sort of personalized tab on receipts so that they're really modular. I don't use a computer to make my charts. I just write everything out on receipts or little pieces of paper so that uh, weeks or sometimes years later, I go back to the ideas, see if they still grab me. And then if they do, I start matching them up with other receipts of little um, uh, melodic or rhythmic ideas. And then I end up make um, building riff medleys that way. And then sometimes if they're sort it's of like in the right of spring. Yeah, what what what, 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 what was what was Stravinsky's Stravinsky's wrote a whole bunch of just stuff on in manuscript paper and then threw it on the floor and then put it just put them together. Okay, cool. Ran- randomly, nice. So I've heard. Um, but uh, these receipts you're writing, like, are these you've purchased something and you're using that receipt, or because you work in a store now, you're just yeah. printing out random receipts. I, I prefer the dimensions of LCBO receipts; they give you a lot of space. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and we got lots of those. Yeah, those easy to find. Brody West has told me maybe don't do that because of the BPA, but we'll see. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Brody for looking out for my health. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so yeah, sometimes if if they if I like how the 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 different bits um, match up in terms of um, one rhythm going into another rhythm, or if the, but if the the keys maybe aren't really jiving for me then i'll you know rewrite one of the one of the bits um so that it's more um uh um c- congruent or whatever with uh with the, with the previous one in terms of the the modes or the scales so i'll sort of rejig it that way so what are you writing on the receipts like what's the what's the the material you're writing on there that tells you what you're trying to write or when you look at it they're just, years later that's going to jog your memory they're just ostinatos like so sometimes they're higher up on um on the guitar but a lot of the time with dun dun band i was really inspired initially by um by josh abrams and by um uh moroccan nawa music the stuff that he was inspired by so that's not the only inspiration but it's a big one for that band so i guess the big three inspirations would be uh american minimalism spiritual jazz and to some extent, that yeah, the Nawa music, but then also progressive rock, just in terms of all the the time signatures and whatnot. So the, uh, yeah, I just write down they're they're often like ostinatos, like bass lines, but play on guitar. Yeah, I'm just curious though, like what they actually look like, because you say you don't you don't read music, but you're what's the what's the code like? You know, the literal marks on the page that oh, indicate man. to you what um, what they're what, so what yeah, to play. just uh, like um. Uh, string names is like string numbers and then fret numbers and then under uh, underscores for rests and then um, sometimes I'll group if it's triplets I'll uh, I'll like un- like uh, sort of underline them and uh, um, put a three underneath or if it's swung then I'll put like play swung in in the uh, underneath the the date um, uh, th- that I wrote them on, um, but uh, yeah, yeah. To usually, um, and then if um, uh, if it's a slur, th- then I'll maybe uh, like um, sort of put a little squiggle underneath the, uh, the the two frets to indicate that I'm sliding up or sliding down or or pulling off or hammering on. Um, so yeah, there, there's really is tablature. Yeah, yeah, it's tab. So when. Yeah. You have uh, percussion and saxophones and other instruments in, in the bands. Like, what what do you give them to render the tunes? Well, I guess that's where rehearsal comes in handy in terms of um, 
when going over the the ostinaos, the main riffs with everybody, um, this is also where it helps that everybody in the band is much more experienced or, you know, they're arguably stronger players than me and they've all almost all led their own bands. And so they often have really great input in terms of suggestions. So with the horns, with um, uh, Karen Ng and Colin Fisher and Brody West and Ted Crosby, they'll often um, suggest um, where nice sort of hits or emphases might be in terms of breaking up the, the, um, the melodic line, breaking up the full ostinato and sort of what, um, you know, there's sometimes some bits where there might be like horn hits, almost like like funk band style, and so they'll emphasize some of the the lines of uh, of the ostinato, but omit some of them just to just to um, um, yeah flesh out the composition a bit more, get make it a bit more call and responsey and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, do you have a when you're writing as part of your process? Like, do you have a time that you like to write, or a certain place where you like to write, or if you're using receipts, are you writing at work? <laughs> I, I the I don't have the time anymore to write at work because I'm just too busy and too out in the open. But when I worked at a book warehouse um, around when I was like 25 or so, uh, that was great for for messing around and uh, playing hooky at work and being creative at work. In the early days of leading up to the Glissandra 70 stuff, a lot of stuff, especially the visual art that I contributed to the... the, um, the gatefold inner of Glissandra 70, that was all um, visual artwork, like um, stenciled stuff that I made while I should have been working in the book warehouse. <laughs> but yeah, n- nowadays I'm, I'm more responsible at, at work. Uh, uh, getting old sucks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's going to be so responsible at work. <laughs> um, so for the, each of the pieces uh, in listening to them, do you think about what shape the piece might take? In advance, like how 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 much do you map the architecture? Sometimes it depends on the piece. Um, sometimes it's because part of the habits that I've I've grown into um, involve me putting aside um, riff ideas. Sometimes for a long period of time. Other times, though, I'll come up with an initial form right away. And especially if it's because sometimes some of my pieces have like additive or subtractive tendencies in terms of rhythm. Like it might go like. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 beats or the the opposite. So sometimes it's some of that sort of Philip Glassy tendency to like lengthen the line or shorten the line um, in terms of like treating the melody as like a cell that expands and contracts. So when I have an idea like that, then, you know, I'm more likely um, often to write that idea out all at once. The other time where I'm most likely to write out most of the... Um, development of the piece all in one go is another um, aspect of my pieces. Um, yeah, another sort of style that uh, I fall into is um, uh, um, stuff that involves maybe more like uh, like a finger picking approach where um, uh, I'll move the, the finger picking pattern, you know, up or down the fretboard and there'll be like modulations of this finger picking idea. And so in a lot of those pieces, I'll be able to sort of flesh out most of, like there's one piece um, called uh, D that uh, um, that w- that uh, we have nicknamed in the band as Floater, at least for the time being. And I'm pretty sure I wrote that one all in one go because it was, yeah, a finger pick pattern that just modulates. Right. So how did you know then... That it was done, done. <laughs> uh, What's the end point? Like, if you know, um, were the 
ending the modulation or ending the pattern? Uh, sometimes it gets revisited and revised and um, and finessed, but um, yeah, sometimes it goes back to like the tonic, quote unquote, like back to the initial riff, okay. which is so you know it goes through it, a cycle. Yeah, so 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 sometimes it's that easy. Um, uh, but yeah, other times I might go back to it and be like, oh, that's a bit of a cop out. I gotta I gotta make that a bit more interesting. Right. Yeah. Um, it sounds like the guitar is pretty central to what you're doing. Like, what what role does the instrument play in in your composing process? Like, are you composing at the guitar, sitting with it? Oh in yeah, your yeah, hands? yeah. I always pl- um, write on an unamplified electric, just because I used to have an acoustic, but yeah, many years ago um, sold it because I never used it, and uh, yeah, I um, yeah, I, I yeah, I write everything on the guitar. Um, at some point I'd, I'd, I'd love to relearn piano because I did l- learn that quote unquote when I was like five or so, but, uh, that was before I enjoyed playing music. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone in that, uh, <laughs> the old piano lesson, yeah. uh, piano lesson routine. Yeah. Nothing kills musical enjoyment faster than piano lessons. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's certainly what happened to me. Um, so, but then you have other it sounds like you have another version where you are sticking these receipts and these little bits of tab together. And, mm-hmm. and do you do that in a kind of a random way or, or an intuitive way of seeing what sounds, what works? I mean, um, initially it might be random, but then um, uh, sometimes I might find commonalities in terms of rhythm. Like, you know, if if there are a few that are in seven or in fives or in elevens or or whatever, um, but but just as often there might be modal similarities in terms of um, uh, yeah having um, um, notes in common um, or the spot on the fretboard in in common, and so then I'll, I'll I, yeah I'll just as often sort of flesh it out that way and and another great motivator in terms of finishing pieces is the fear of a, a struck uh, in, instilled you know struck in you by a deadline that uh, oftentimes I'll, I'll I'll try and um uh give give the band one or two new songs before the gig and then you know if, if one of the, the songs is working better than the other one put the other new uh, potential song um aside um, yeah, I, I like to, to introduce at least one new song per per show. So so right. that that that's good in terms of encouraging me to be a bit more productive. <laughs> Having a show as a motivator. Yeah, of course. Um, does improvisation play a role in your music now? It only does in the sense that, like, I mess around on fake jazz guitar on my own in the privacy of my bedroom, and I'd love to 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 be someone who is comfortable playing uh, uh, noodly jazz guitar in a formal public setting. But f- yeah, the uh, so that sort of improvisation doesn't really make it to the page and then uh, to the stage. Um, it's more just the improvisation of, um, yeah, once I start... I mean, they all start from improvising in terms of just fiddling around on the guitar. Invariably... When before I write something down, I might be messing around on the guitar in a jazzier mode or or some sort of uh, a, a mode that's idiomatic in, in some sort of other way, and then I might start falling into more of a rhythmic thing or a modal thing that starts sounding 
more like me, quote unquote, something where I, I can imagine, oh, the, this, yeah, the, this is sounding like, you know, how I think of myself in terms of the music that I've made in the recent past and what, what I would be up for presenting to other people. So there, there's a bit of, I don't know, maybe self-censorship is a weird way to, to, way to phrase it, but uh, um, but yeah, it all does ultimately stem from improvisation because it's, yeah, I don't know how to write tone rows or anything. So yeah, I, I, I can't generate source material that way. Um, although right, the, so you generate it through playing and physical engagement with the instrument. Yeah, for, for sure. Exactly. Unless, and but so, uh, um, conversely, some of the strongest stuff and this is some of my favorite stuff. Happen sometimes I'll be w walking around and come up with a melody or a rhythm, and then try and repeat it as best I uh, as best I can until I get home so I can write it down. And that's actually where some of the strongest melodies come. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so when when that happens, I I I uh, I, I uh, it sounds melodramatic, but but I do I do cherish when that happens because you know it's not always the strongest, but among the the strongest things that I've come up with have been yeah just sort of um, yeah uh, like something that I've just sort of hummed to myself uh, I, yeah the, uh, yeah I guess there's there can be something to the the power of a sung melody versus versus something that's played you know the, you fall into different habits in terms of muscle memory and whatnot when it comes to the um, you know, the 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 way that uh, yeah, what it, what it occurs to you to play on the instrument? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you're and you're sort of maybe limited by, um, you know, um, by past habits and and whatnot. Um, but yeah, but but there have been other times. Um, it, it doesn't happen as often. Um, but yeah, the the times where a melody pops into my head. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoy it when that happens because th there is a good chance that when I figure out how to play it on on the guitar, it'll hold up over time. Mm -hmm. And do you? I, a lot of people I've talked to have been using their uh, voice memos to record things on on phones when they're out out walking. I I haven't done that myself. Is that a is that a thing that you've done? I've given it a shot. It hasn't stuck as a habit. Um, it's not something I discount in the future. So you're not going to be releasing like a box set of your voice memos, Taylor Swift style. Whoa. <laughs> oh. Or your teenage diaries. Oh yeah. Uh thankfully no. Okay. Uh yeah. Um plus I'll have to get excited about something else then. plus I find it sort of like a masochistically fun exercise to like r repeat it in your head as as, as, as you know, just to, to, to try the to try and memorize it. It, it can be painfully fun sometimes. <laughs> painfully fun. <laughs> Maybe Maybe that can be a, you know, an album title for you. <laughs> um, all right. Well, maybe it's time to listen to some music. Um, right. We're going to start with one of your collaborations with Sandra Perry, Wet Max. Yeah. So this is the lead off track on the volume of the, what I believe is still intended to be a three volume set of off-world records. So um, yeah, I wasn't involved in the first one, but there are three or maybe four, including a little short interlude tune that I was involved with on the second one. So this is from the second Offworld album. It's the lead off track. Um, I play either bass on it or guitar through a whammy pitch down so that it sounds like a bass. Um, and it's called Wet Max. All right, Wet Max. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
So that sounds like a very studio construction dubbed out kind of thing with, um, I assume that's you playing bass and all sorts of other things happening on there. So what can you tell us about it? Well, uh, so yeah, so for that one, I'm on bass or as I said, leading into it, I might be playing guitar put through a whammy and pitch down so that it sounds like a bass. I forget which of those two um, things is, is going on on that. But um, yeah, it's me on bass me on um, electronic hand drums, this, the same one that Jay Anderson now plays in Dun Dun Band, but while he sticks to um, like preset um, conga and tabla sounds, that that was one where, yeah, I sort of um, scrolled through and customized some of the presets to 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 make it sound a bit more like like animal noises and and have a bit more of a a a, a fourth world. Uh, uh, vibe um yeah so you mentioned john hassel the uh trumpet player so what uh what about his music uh inspired you or informs this piece um the the mood for one the um especially the way that that mood can be generated through a harmonizer which is like one of his signature moves and i guess also the um yeah, the yeah the way the baseline moves yeah was definitely inspired by how the baselines of it, it operate in his especially eighties work like um the the I think around the time that I wrote this I was really into as a bonus track in um, the reissue of City Works of Fiction I think there was like a bonus disc called The Living City where it was recorded at the World Trade Center in the in the early to mid 80s and there was yeah just the 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 really slinky bass lines of that period of, of of his work i i i really like a lot and yeah that riff might be a little bit mathier than 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 what he does in terms of it, it that it might loop around in i don't know if it's a 17 or there's there's probably some some odd odd time trickery to it um but uh yeah and the, and i think that's where mine uh, one of the the spots, you know, in terms of the, the middle of the Venn diagram between Sandro's taste and mine, and we, we've shared lots of music with each other over the years, but uh, would be the that whole sort of dreamy, um, yeah, the, the dreamier side of new music, whether it be um, John Hassel's the sort of fourth world sensibility or the lovely music sensibility like Blue Jean Tyranny and um, um, Robert Ashley and Peter Gordon and stuff like that. So this was a this is a longer project of you collaborating with Sandro. Like what, um, how did that, how did that work? Like around, I guess the division of labor and what he brought to it and what you guys actually did together. I guess, how would you characterize that collaboration? Well, yeah, I guess, um, with, with most of the stuff I've worked, I worked on with Sandro, it'd be me contributing the initial riff or the initial, um, the initial idea. And then, he would help flesh it out, um, 
improve the arrangement in terms of, of um, maybe generating a, 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 a bit more movement to it, uh, whether through mixing or sort of encouraging me to, to write sort of second parts. Um, and then um, also there, 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 were, there, there were times where it was vice versa, where it was me, me sort of um, um, uh, expanding upon his initial idea. The one that comes to mind that was more along those lines was a one-off thing that, um, track that we contributed to a, a children's uh, compilation um, put out by Paper Bag, where it was, it was Sandro's song, and I added some um, some very weenish. Uh, Harmony, vo high harmony vocals, and some very Eric Chanoish uh, soloing. It's maybe the 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 one time on record where my my my, my guitar playing sort of got into a freer, more improvis improvisatory zone. I know this is totally indebted to Eric <laughs> and Martin. Right. So you guys work together a lot on on lots of stuff. Is this generally kind of how it would go? You'd bring in you'd bring in some riffs, and he would do his some sonic doctoring to it yeah exactly um yeah and sometimes it'd be quick um other times uh especially towards the the end of our you know i mean uh, you know we, we may well work, work together again in the future but uh, yeah towards the end including this track like the deal with this one was that um uh this was one of the pieces that would have been on the successor full length to Glissandra 70. I was thinking of calling it Dundasa 80. Um, yeah, we didn't end up really having completed songs that I felt were strong enough. Um, so yeah, so this one and the two or three other tunes that, that were a bit more developed got folded into the off-world concept where the, the what connected everything was was Sandro being the... Um, the uh, the engineer and the and the producer and the the dubber outer, uh, mm -hmm. whether it be him working with me or him working with Lawrence Peter or him working with um, there were some some sessions in uh, London England that that uh, um, with uh, like three or four other electronic musicians that he was psyched to it was more of like a one off thing um, playing with people that he he had never before had the chance to collaborate with so. Um, so yeah, so so that was uh, a piece that um, yeah that that would have been for the intended follow up, um, and, and and yeah, going back to your initial question, uh, yeah, more often than not, uh, I'd contribute the initial idea and then we develop it. But um, relating to how long sometimes it took before things were finalized and put out, um, yeah, th that was on the back burner for a while. Um, and then we, uh, we finished it up. I forget if it was a small uh, number of years later, but, uh, yeah, it took a while for, for that one to finally come out. Hmm. Um, and what about the structure of it? Can you tell us anything about what the architecture of the piece is? Yeah, I guess, um, it's not worlds away from the Dun Dun stuff in terms of it all revolves around a very cyclical, circular ostinato. Um, this one on an actual bass instead of a guitar or a guitar pitched down to approximate a bass. Um, and then everything else revolves around it. Pretty sure it's Sandro on synth in terms of the higher, um, harmonized synth line that really, uh, cements it as being fourth world in indebted in terms of the use of the 
the harmonizer. And then, yeah, around this time, I was really getting excited about the um, the possibilities offered by um, using the the hand drum. Um, yeah, there, there's something about hand percussion that I really like, not only in terms of how it feels using a hand drum and performing with it, but in terms of um, just how it how it sounds in performance or, or on record, which in great part is why in, in my band, there's no kit that uh, it's it's Blake Howard and Jay Anderson, both on hand percussion, like uh, one Jay's playing digital and, and uh, uh, Blake's on the analog congas. <laughs> is there something about the... Uh the the digital hand drum that that you like like why why using that instead of the acoustic equivalent well at the moment the um what makes it so much more potentially interesting is cut off from me and from jay and anyone else who uses it because it's 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 a bit broken. I need to take it in and get and get it repaired. So you're not able to to go into the menus um, and access these additional um, these additional potentially customizable uh, banks, uh, which is um, what I was messing around with to come up with the um, the sounds in the background that sound like um, jungle birds and howler monkeys and all kinds of stuff uh, chirping away in the background of that. So so Jay is stuck with uh, with. With the presets, which is fine for 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 Dun Dun Band because it, um, yeah, there's there's enough going on, enough members that um, he can just stick to the preset um, uh, conga and and tabla sounds. But yeah, one thing with um, the, the 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 electronic hand drum that that's on there, uh, the Roland Hand Sonic that that's really fun is uh, all the customizable banks, and especially when it comes to to tuned percussion, you know, there are some decent. Um, Glockenspiel sounds and marimba sounds and whatnot, and so um, yeah, there, there there was a period where where I was using that and folding it into solo live performance because there was a period where I was playing solo as Canada seventy, and so that the the hand drum when it when it was uh, uh, fully usable and playable, uh, it, it it did get a lot of use in terms of uh, of, of customizing the the banks and, and and messing around with the pitches. And also, uh, one of the cool things um, with the hand drum is being able to change what sounds are where on it. And so it's sort of, and so it, it can sort of um, allow you to like uh, sometimes I would play it melodically in terms of using pitch drums that were each pitch was sort of oriented on the you know nine or so spots on the hand drum where yeah did just sort of different like coming up with different patterns not unlike how on a on a kalimba on a thumb piano it's not all sort of left to right um, low pitch to high pitch and so you can sort of experiment it and come up with melodic ideas that you wouldn't come up with any other way. Right, yeah, because the thumb piano often has the lower pitch in the middle and then it goes... And extends it, out. It extends out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, and so actually related to that, there's another Dun Dun piece that we could play, Long Winter, where the melody line was come was devised precisely... Yeah, sort of... I Where I... It, the only way... The main way I came up with the melody was because I came up with it on a thumb piano, and I don't think I would have been able to think of it on a um, on a guitar. the 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 main The main line is is because I plucked it out on a kalimba and wrote it down because I, I I thought it worked. Oh, great! Uh, yeah, maybe we can get to that one. 
but we've been talking so much about the Dun Dun Band. Let's we should get to some of that. Alrighty. Um, you've done some. I guess it's not that recent now, but um, it's kind of demo rehearsal recordings of this band. So I'm really excited that, for this to become a proper album sometime soon. Um, the tune that I picked uh, of the bunch you sent me that I'd like to hear you talk about is um, Drizzler. Oh, right. Did I say that right? Well, the, the thing is, is that um, that was the, the name was was recently um, coined or um, uh, yeah. It, because I'm not the best at uh, titling these pieces, at least not yet, we um, either named them all by um, by letter. So a lot of the pieces are A, B, C, D, and so on. But then others are just named after the places where we debuted them. And so this piece was debuted at the Drake Underground, and so it was called uh, it was called Drake. But writing that down, you know, could understandably lead to some confusion here in the six. Mm -hmm. And so uh, then, you know, instead of writing Drizzy, I figure I'd write Drizzly. So I I don't think any of my fellow band members know it's it's for the time being called Drizzly. For the time being, I'm calling it Drizzly. All right. Here's Drizzly by the Dun Dun Band, which we've heard so much about. Uh, here it goes. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, that was Drizzler, and you're telling me there that this is a good example of your uh, receipt. It is. Your receipt period. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the, the first two riffs are variations on, on the other, and the, the second riff in the piece might have been... Um, might not have been initially written down, but but all the other ones like the um, the first one and the third and fourth and fifth um, uh, riffs, I believe, were all written independent of each other. And then I think it was just when I was um, when I had them all sort of splayed out, re I realized that they were all in in a similar uh, similar enough key or or mode or what have you that uh, they could, they could all. Um, line up sequentially. Hmm. So how did you, what was the process of putting them together? Like, did you do it on your own or through working with the band? Well, initially... Because yeah, this is more of a live band than, yeah, the, than exactly. the previous song You're, you're right, to. though, that sometimes, I'm not sure if it happened with this piece, but sometimes with some of these ones, um, yeah, sometimes with these pieces, I might, um, after... Um, going over them in rehearsal with the band, uh, uh, you know, uh, retract like oh, um, strikes some of the riffs if if they're if they're feeling maybe a little unnatural or a bit clunky, which I guess and with this sort of 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 rhythmic approach, that I guess is a potential danger or hazard in terms of when you're making stuff in odd time signatures. I suppose sometimes you're riding the line between it sounding a little too clever or tricksy and the the aim is to have it be trance inducing like to 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 be sort of hip, hypnotic sounding especially cuz with a lot of these riffs in odd times what i'm hoping for is because it resolves after the second repetition of it after the second measure that you sort of lose your footing as like uh your oral footing you know in between the first and the second repetition and then it resolves again rhythmically, you know, especially if, if you've got like a 17 or a 13 or whatever, sometimes it can sound unnatural until, especially if you, if, if you have sort of like a split time subdivision, like, you know, imagine like a kick that's, that's like doing a, like a, like a split time pulse, you know, and then it flops around after the, 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 the second repetition. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I hope that what I'm I'm trying to convey makes a bit of, of sense, but but that's where, like, that's what, what what often sort of gets me off rhythmically is uh is uh yeah the flop as it were, <laughs> the flop the, yeah um yeah I mean you did a little bit of it now just there but um, could you break that down a little bit more for me like the like this piece is clearly um, a re repeating rhythm that goes through a bunch of modes or sort of key key centers but there's some some deep rhythmic thinking going on here. Yeah, I guess one of the down for me? one of the rhythmic ambiguities. Yeah, I should have brought some of these um the charts for some of these pieces so that I could um you know um break it down a, a bit more fully, but off the top of my head in this piece well you, podcasts we, aren't a visual medium, so um Yeah, yeah, no exactly and there'd be a lot of actually here's a piece of paper so there's <laughs> there'd be a lot more of this going on. Um so I guess maybe a rhythmic ambiguity in terms of 15s being possibly broken down in terms of like triplet threes like the um uh yeah this was something actually that got worked out in rehearsal in terms of yeah some of these riffs are in 15s and so there, there'll be um you know the hand drums doing like triplet threes underneath 
but then the the ostinato, uh, you know, the main riff will be in, you know, in three three groups of five, you know. So 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 th things like that, I, I guess, uh, come into play in, um, in in pieces such as this. Yeah. So you're doing that, you're doing that math kind of on the receipts. Oh yeah, yeah. Does the information on the receipts ever make it into the <laughs> compositional process, like uh, working with the numbers of your your credit card or the address of the uh, LCBO oh, or something? That's next level. That's that's 2020 goals right there. Right. <laughs> Do a little numerology yeah. on your on, on on your receipts. Yep. Um, so, but then you've got um, you've got a, 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 harp, a melodic kind of harmonic context too, where these these rhythmic cycles go through some different tonal centers like where does do you have a way of generating where they're where they're going to go um it oftentimes is is trial and error one of the things though that um sometimes i i i am aware of before i present it to the band sometimes um during rehearsal that um in terms of the cueing that that um that is in play is because we move from riff to riff but the um, amounts of repetition of each riff is not set. Part of this band inherently, at least in terms of my limitations as a band leader who is has both his, his hands um, not free, stuck to the instrument that as I'm uh, playing guitar, um, is that I end up being a, a bit of a drill sergeant. Hopefully a kind and benevolent drill sergeant, but I'm... I, I, uh, I, I let everybody know uh, via uh, barking out uh, how many reps you know um, uh, we have left to go before we switch. So uh, that's something that uh, um, you know, if and when we we, we make a, a a live full length of this material, you might well um, hear it off mic in terms of uh, four and switch or four and cut. Um, so, so you're doing audio cues of when, yeah, exactly. When... Thought audio cues. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe if I had some sort of foot pedal with a red light, then uh, you know it uh, it it, it uh, might not be be part of uh, of the, of the audio. But I'll, I'll, for the time being, I'll just have to to work around it and um, and in incorporate it into into the piece. And is that intuitive? Like, or, or do you know how many times something is going to go, and then you call it? Or it's going a certain amount of time, and you just feel it's time to move on. Well, that's the thing, and that's maybe one of the that's where. Um, that aspect of it is where, you know, although this music is not really improvised music, one of the improvised components of it is in terms of how long to let, to ride on each riff before moving to the next. And um, I'm, I'm trying to get better at it, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that really helps in terms of me gauging or judging when to move on is what my bandmates are doing, um, whether it be, uh, you know... Um, Mike on the uh, on the keyboard transcombobulations, or uh, or the, the 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 horn players in terms of you know if they're being um, particularly frenzied and and active, or if one of them's taking a solo, just uh, trying to do my best to gauge um, when it makes sense musically and structurally to to move on and uh, when to hang in there and right. allow. So, so something's really grooving. You let it. You want to let it hang. Exactly. Um, sometimes though, because we're such a big band. There have been um, limitations imposed on that on the stage, where you know sometimes if we're if we're at a gig and we can't really circle around. So like sometimes on stage, especially if we're opening and we have to, we're on the edge of the stage because we don't want 
you know the the, the openers to have to strike everything. Some sometimes that that can lead to me not being able to hear everybody as well. Um, so so there have been times where hopefully it hasn't impinged too much on the quality of the performance. But yeah, there have been times where I wished I could hear everybody a bit more clearly on stage so that I'd I'd know when is best to to uh, to move on and, and when to hang. But uh, sometimes there's uh, no way around that, and you just have to figure it out. What would you know? Couple of ideas. Like, would would it would you entertain basically having a conductor there to to do it, or like, or do you really want to be in charge? You're you're right, especially related. I'm not offering. I'm just no, no, no. <laughs> I'm a terrible <laughs> yeah, conductor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, actually, related to that one, um, uh, it it would sort of be neat. To, to get to conduct in this sort of John Zorn sense of it in terms of how he uses... Because, um, yeah, that, that's someone where I, I really enjoy watching him conduct in terms of, um, I guess, some of his moves, some of his lexicon is like conduction, like the Butch Morris sort of thing mm -hmm. in terms of some of the hand signals he's devised, like not worlds away from like in terms of bringing it back to here in Toronto, like Dave Clark, the way that he leads a band mm -hmm. and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I do find it really cool when somebody has their hands free and so um, um, th th they can work on much more of a glossary of, um, you know, uh, of, of dynamic shifts and, and whatnot um, in terms of uh, having the instructions given to the players be a bit more fleshed out. Yeah, because I've been thinking about this a, a bit myself too with some music I'm working on where I've noticed in a lot of Steve Reich music is that he will have an instrumental cue. Like there's an instrument, like in Music for 18 Musicians, for example, like there's a vibraphone when they play this thing. Gotcha. That's, this is the last time. And then and then you're into the next thing. Yeah, yeah. In that piece. Um, I haven't quite figured out how I could work that out, but, and I don't know if you could in in your band either, just, just uh I kind of like that. I I like that idea. When oh, I, for when, sure. I no, when I noticed it happening, I was like, okay, this is that's why <laughs> this thing is happening now. Yeah, exactly. No, I I just gave a fresh listen to Music for Eighteen Musicians um, the other week, and uh, yeah, I did find that super satisfying. Um, I think in part because it had been ages since I right. last checked it out. But but uh, yeah, you, you you're right. Um, some, not some, that your dr drill sergeanting is a problem. It, <laughs> Ho <hopefully laughs> it's part not. of the show. Hopefully not. Hopefully hopefully I'm a friendly drill sergeant. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, yeah, so this is very much a live band kind of experience. You're um, hoping to to record this project. Like if you do, if you are able to get into a studio, like how would you how would you do it? Would you want to do it live or or track the individual parts? Um, because there's a little bit of improvising, but it's mostly in a kind of soloist sort of way. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a good question, um, and it's something that I have yet to to, to to fully figure out. I guess um, one factor would be the size of the room and um, how well we could or couldn't separate it. Um, so yeah, I guess one option would be to to track um, everyone who does has more of a um, sort of rhythmic bed component um and then uh have the horns um overdub but uh yeah it, it would be ideal to have everyone there because if we were to do it in a two-step process um you know it 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 could maybe take a bit of the feel out of it i guess the one potential advantage to that is that you wouldn't have the drill sergeant aspect on record but <laughs> but sometimes i do like um you know, so, sometimes I really love the energy that a live or live seeming um, recording lends 
to a performance, like one that comes to mind in terms of of um, minimalist recordings um, um, that in recent years that I love because it's a live recording and the energy that that imbues would be um, Feminine by uh, Julius Eastman. I, there's just something about that where, or also another in terms of um, on the jazz end of, uh, of, of minimalist stylings, I really love how those Phil Coran records sound. You know, they're maybe not the highest fi, don't necessarily have the greatest number of mics set up, but um, yeah, um, who knows? Uh, yeah, those might be some, some, some benchmarks in terms of, uh, of um, you know, me not necessarily trying to ape, but just sort of thinking about um, uh, how those recordings make me feel, and 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 uh, how to make a, a recording that'll uh, um, reach for that. Yeah, I really, I really like how you frame that around doing versions of uh, your own versions of kind of what what you're hearing and what's inspiring to you. Like, I think that's a very honest. In- honest way of talking about how most of us actually make music um which you know you don't hear that level of honesty too much like most of us hear something get excited and then try and do a version of that so it's really refreshing to hear you well yeah speak about it i I don't have any shame about it especially because nor should you well uh especially because hopefully by the time i'm done with it it doesn't really sound you know you can you can hear what my influences are but ho- hopefully what by the time it comes out the other end like oh hopefully yeah, it's filtered through everything else yeah and um and yeah i mean I, i'm just, i'm mainly trying to play and present stuff to other people that that i you know like i yeah what one aspect of it and i guess this is where repetition plays into it is that yeah i like the aspect of trance or of, of sort of hypnotic music it, it, um yeah, that aspect of it is still something that really drives me in terms of, I think, and this is where maybe um, uh, stage fright plays into it or that anxiety that can be produced when, you know, you're not a constantly gigging musician, you know, like I'm somebody that doesn't play shows super often, maybe like seven or eight times a year. So I, yeah, so I, I find that I have to be, like it really helps for me to be playing music that I can zone out while playing. Um yeah, I I find it really helps in terms of tra- transcending the um, the nerves and whatnot, and and hopefully in, um, enjoying it as a, as opposed to um, yeah, because there were many times, especially in my twenties, where I didn't enjoy playing live, and so I, I think it helps that if I'm able to sort of bake that into it and and, and make music where I can really lose myself in it, hmm. that then I can actually have fun and not beat myself up about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's. That's beautiful too. Um, making music that it makes sense for for you to do with wherever one's one's head is at. Yeah, and I, I think um, one aspect too, like having so many people in the band, all of whom are are so seasoned and such, um, uh, you know, are are, are are people that you know that I, I I greatly admire and that I look to for advice. Like you know, it's it's really um, humbling, and I still have a lot to learn from from a band leader. So. Um, yeah, so so I'm I'm glad that all that all these people that uh, whose work I admire are, are, are up for uh, for working with me. Yeah, well, and the results are there. The band sounds fantastic. Cheers, Pete. Yeah. So we'll wind things down here. Um, I got a kind of standard last question I like to ask um, to end things on a optimistic note. Uh, although that was pretty optimistic. What were you just talking about there? 
But do you have any a musical vision that you haven't been able to realize for whatever reason, uh, technical, financial, um, that you would like to do? Even I'll, I'll, I'll keep my goals attainable um, and uh, I, I want to make a full length. Um, yeah, a lot of the pieces are in place in terms of... Um, of, uh, of um, folks offering to help with the recording and the release of it. Um, you know, don't want to reveal details because uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of logistics I have to, to finagle with and, and figure out. But uh, I think that's a reasonable goal is to, uh, to, to, to get a done done LP recorded, hopefully by the end of the year and then maybe released in the next year and a half. So we'll see. That's a very pragmatic answer. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> aim, aim reasonably. Yes. <laughs> for 2020. <laughs> All right. Well, Craig Dunsmere, thanks so much for, for coming in and uh, really a treat to talk to you about this stuff and um, just great to hear about it. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Pete. That's the show, friends. I guess that's the series. I hope you liked it. I hope you got inspired. I hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. If you want to know more about what Craig is up to, the best place to find out about that is his remarkable Bandcamp page, where you can not only listen to Craig's own music, you can also check out what he's been listening to at any given moment. A really good life goal would be to try to keep up with Craig's musical recommendations on his Bandcamp fan page. We would all be richer for following the musical threads that he so selflessly lays out for us. The link to that will be in the show notes. As always, the content and sound quality of the show is the sole responsibility of me, Pete Johnston. But this time out, I had some very welcome production and editing help from Mark Zerwinski. Thanks a million for that, Mark. If you like the show, please subscribe, check out some of the earlier episodes, uh, tell your friends about it. As you know, I'm not on social media, so if you are one of those people who are, who has better business sense than I do, please let the people know through the social media. As usual, we'll let my guest play us out here for the last time. So here's a piece Craig recorded all by his lonesome during the long nights of the great lockdown of 2020. It's called Pandemo Number 1. And in typically generous fashion, Craig dedicates this to all the members of his band. There may not be a next time, friends, but until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>